Welcome to another episode of Team Anywhere, where CEOs, leaders, and experts at building teams, companies, organizations, and amazing cultures share how to lead from anywhere in the world. I'm your co-host on the East Coast, Judy Bianco Mathis. And I'm your co-host on the West Coast, Mitch Simon. And we invite you to join us to Team Anywhere. Do you have a team innovation plan? Are you making it part of your day job? Are you asking your team members to conduct tiny experiments before they present their idea for the way forward? Today on the podcast, we interview Elvin Turner, who wrote Be Less Zombie, How Great Organizations Create Dynamic Innovation, Fearless Leadership, and Passionate People, a practical book that will teach your team how to be more innovative. Elvin took inspiration from a guerrilla negotiator cage fighter trainer, and a senior emergency room doctor to help us all become more innovative. One of the greatest insights from the podcast is to think of your team as a product. How are you making sure your product, your team, will be relevant in the future as you team anywhere? Hello and welcome to another episode of Team Anywhere. I'm your co-host, Mitch Simon, on the West Coast, and I have in our studio our amazing co-host, Dr. Virginia Bianco. Mathis on the East Coast. Today, you know what? Why don't you introduce our guest, Jenny? This sounds great. We are excited to have Elvin Turner all the way from England on this virtual setting. Elvin is an award-winning innovation expert and associate professor on innovation, entrepreneurship, and marketing for MBA and other executive education programs. And his clients include some of the world's most innovative organizations in finance, technology, music, publishing. He's coached hundreds of corporate innovation initiatives around the world, helping leaders and managers overcome the barriers that they face when they deal with how do we take this new idea idea and put it into action. He'd been getting a lot of buzz lately on his new book, Be Less Zombie, How Great Organizations Create Dynamic Innovation, Fearless Leadership, and Passionate People. Welcome, Elvin. Thank you. It's fantastic to be here. Really looking forward to the conversation. Excellent. We had already chatted a bit. Let's explore a little more. What have you learned from the past two years? Because this epidemic that has hit the entire world had different effects on all of us. Mm. What have you learned? Well, I guess the main thing is I've had to learn to take my own medicine because I talk about innovation, <laughs> you know, and my world has changed. I mean, my world hasn't changed drastically. Most of the stuff that I do is helping senior executives in workshop settings very often, running leadership programs, teaching on MBAs. Okay, it all went virtual. You know, I had to sit in front of a laptop like many other people. But actually, it's been very good for me to pause and think, what value am I actually trying to create for clients? And are the ways that I've been doing for the last 5, 10, 15 years still the best ways of doing it? And just like everybody else that's taking the opportunity to look at how we create value you know, particularly in a virtual world, I've had to look at my own practice through that lens and coming up with some interesting answers. Yeah, well, give me one learning. One of them is linked to the book. And that is quite often I take the content from the book out and we play around with it in workshop settings and all sorts of other things. I've actually developed an app 
that a team can use to run their own book club where they can read the book collectively together and then for each chapter they're writing notes and they see what their colleagues are writing and at the end they can vote on things that they believe they need to take forward so that's a shortcut for me to arrive at a workshop they've read the book they've already got some thoughts about innovation strategy and culture and what they need to do next for me an acceleration of higher quality thinking turning up at the workshop rather than sometimes turning up and starting from scratch. Totally. I want to talk to you about that separately. It has a lot of different applications. Mm. It's still swirling around in my head. That's fabulous. All right. So you've got this book with a zombie in the title. Yeah. Why do you think it's getting buzz? Because it is. It's getting a lot of buzz. Yeah, well, the word that comes up a lot from readers is practical. And that was so good for me to hear because the whole reason for writing it was to put something in people's hands who know they need to innovate. They're not innovation experts, but I've got to do it anyway. So this was really designed to be a handbook in short, sharp chapters with practical tools that anyone can pick up and turn on. And I'm delighted to get the feedback to say that's what it's for. That's the value that we're getting from it. So I think some of it is, you know, quite often I hear people are frustrated that they buy a business book and It's just really one idea that's stretched over a whole book and there's lots lots of fillers. And, you know, I didn't want to write a book like that. I wanted it to be full, open any chapter and there's two or three things you can just do now. Yeah, And I think that's one of the main things that have resonated with people. Right. Yes, I see that in so many comments. And that's why I believe it also resonates with leaders right now who are having to deal with so many changes. This is hard hitting and they can pick it up and do something with it. Mm. Why do you think the actual concept of innovation, and obviously this is a heavy leading question, Mm. is so important now, especially as we go into hybrid and virtual environments? I think for me, you know, we've been talking about the war for talent for years. I feel like the stakes have gone up a bit now. We look at the great resignation that's being talked about. I think a lot of people are looking at work environments and saying, Is this a place that's going to allow me to do my best work in a way that suits my lifestyle? And if an organization can't answer that question well, you know, they're not going to be front of the queue for the hot talent to come and work at that place. So I think if nothing else, the requirement for great talent and creating an environment that's virtual, you know, and hybrid that has to be front and center is not just what's convenient and most efficient and effective for us as the company. It's now how do we create most value most effectively in ways that human beings enjoy you know because people want to go to work and do their best work they don't want to turn to be a grind and actually one of the things I was going to say earlier about what have I learned in the last couple of years I guess I don't know whether it's a learning or an observation I think people have finally either woken up to or gathered courage to act on the fact that they are very often working environments where they're not treated like human beings they Mm -hmm. are robots going through a process and they come home drained exhausted, not enjoying their work. I meet so many people like that. And I think times have changed in the hybrid world and all that that offers has helped people see, do you know what? Life's too short. I'm going to mm-hmm. vote with my feet and I'm going to wait and, and I'm going to pick an environment that is going to give me a better chance of having the life that I want. So I think first and foremost, most it has to be that. 
excellent. Stepping, you know, sort of high up, what do you feel are three or four major requirements for an organization to be able to say, yeah, we're innovative? That was the heart of the book, really, is going behind the scenes of organizations like Spotify and Netflix and Disney, all of the poster children of innovation that we hear about and saying, well, what are they actually doing? And for me, there's many things, but if you were to crystallize them down to a handful, the first would be, and it sounds so obvious, this first one is they actually choose. We are going to innovate and we might not even know quite how we need to organize in order to be a high performing innovator. But when we look to the future, and we see, you know, these weak signals coming from the future, these trends that sooner or later will change the way that we work and the success of our products. We have to be great innovators. Otherwise, the future will eventually catch up with us. So we have no choice but to choose that state. And many organizations don't make that deliberate choice. It's more of a, well, we'll run some brainstorms. We'll have an innovation jam. Once a year, there's some sort of thing where we do innovation rather than choose to embody innovative. So the first is choose. And the second is innovation doesn't do very well unless it's aligned to strategy and is pointing to a very important business driver that we need to deliver. If it's seen as optional, something that we can switch on, switch off if we need to, it's never going to stick. Like anything else in business, it's exactly the same. If there's a metric if there is a strategic driver behind it, it's got a much greater chance of surviving. So I always say to an organization when I first start to work with them is show me your strategy. If you have an innovation strategy, show me that. If not, we'll design one together. And that's just really about what's the gap that innovation needs to fill that strategy won't deliver on its own. Oh, that's great. And then underneath that, okay, so what metrics will hold that in place? And then crucially, the final one is, okay, leadership. What choices do you need to make in order to hold this whole thing together? What new behaviors are you going to have to step into and what are you going to need to let go of? What are the things that have caused us to succeed in getting this far that will actually destabilize and debilitate our ability to actually deliver into the future? And, and that's where the rubber really hits the road because someone has to change their behaviors, but it's all in service of. And for me, the way I like to frame it is a great leader is someone who is both a good steward of today and tomorrow. They're not leaning back from, but they're leaning into the questions that tomorrow is asking us to answer mm -hmm. today. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it's sometimes uncomfortable space to be in because it's ambiguous and we don't know the answers. And as leaders, we like to know, don't we? So a lot of this hinges on the response on an ongoing basis of leadership to really get hold of innovation and, and sponsor and run the environment required for it to happen. Oh, there's so much packed into what you just shared. What would I see or hear an innovative leader doing or saying versus one over here that tends to be status yeah. quo? Yeah, I think the thing that you should hear more and more is, I don't know, but... I want you to go and find out. I was running a session once with the leaders in a big cell phone company, and it was the top 30, I think it was. And I was asking them about innovation leadership in general. And someone seemingly at random from the back of the room blurted out, leading is knowing, and oh, you know, lots of nods around the room. And I said, really? Can we just unpack that a little bit? Because if that's true... If the only things that we are prepared to innovate around are things where we already know the answer, you know, the edges and the boundaries of how far we'll go into more disruptive, more discovery led innovation are very, very small and tight. So for me, it does start with 
dealing in reality, the speed and scope of change is so fast and profound and deep at the moment, you can't possibly know the answers to some of the questions that may have been more intuitive in previous ages. We have to create environments in which solutions can be discovered rather than the old ways of working where the manager knows best. And what I know and what I can predict defines the sorts of ideas that we'll move Mm -hmm. forward with. Mm -hmm. So that we create a pathway towards that. And it's not that we know the answer. It's that we've put clarity around this is the path we want to go after. Because to your point, the leader can't know all the answers. And that's when they falter. Yeah, their job is define direction and say, now go discover and create an environment where rapid discovery, rapid learning Ah. is something that's prized and rewarded and valued. Right, that being rapid about it. And that is really meaningful today when all Mm. of a sudden you are now virtual or we now have to discover hybrid and we have to discover it fairly quickly in the scheme of things. Yeah, And some organizations are not able to go there. How about, give us one of your favorite examples of here's how innovation happens somewhere. Well, an example at the moment, actually, that that relates to the hybrid world to some extent. And I'm working with an NGO called Compassion and they're a child sponsorship organization. I think they're based in the US, but they're global. They've asked me to help them shape their innovation capability and basically upgrade their innovation capability just so that they can help more kids. And one of the, the ideas that we're playing with in there at the moment with each team is, okay, so here are the objectives that we need to hear at a team level. Here's the innovation that we need to deliver in the next one, three, five years. And we're very clear about what that is. That's great. Those are outcomes. But what about the environment in which those things will happen, the team environment? And mm-hmm. what I'm encouraging is the team to think about themselves as a product. So in the same way that as the market moves, a product is always being upgraded to stay as relevant as possible. Think about yourselves, team, as a product so that as the environment that you're operating in changes, shifts and moves, you're self-calibrating with that environment and making sure that our ways of working are always the ones that are most relevant to the highest possible performance by implication bakes in a requirement for ongoing change. What we're doing today, we probably won't be doing some of this in six months time. And and it's healthy for us to look at what's working well, what's working less well, what should we stop, start, increase, decrease. And that's just the way of life. It's not just the way that you'd look at a product. It's also the way that you would look at a team. And that's one live example of something at the moment. Oh, that. Tons of light bulbs just went on. I have not heard that before. I think it's an amazing paradigm shift that a team itself is a product. Mm. Now, I can see team members being scared about that. How have you talked that through with them so they embrace it? Yeah, because I guess you could start to say, well, that means team members are features of the product. Some of this for me is it's about moving towards a healthy view of what work really is. And you know, and if we want to be really brave, we need to be real with the fact that the roles that are required to deliver value today and in the ways that we want to do that, we should not assume that they will always exist. And we should always be real, I think, with ourselves to say, am I just here because I need this job and I'm hanging on to this job and I'm going to do everything I can to keep this job, even if it's really deep down and it's to the detriment of the performance of the team. Yes. It's not real. It's not healthy. I would 
always advocate that we're creating an environment where there is such deep trust and transparency and connection to purpose with the organization. We're always making choices as good stewards for the sake of the organization, for the team. And sometimes that may mean I've got to take a hit. Okay, so there's a great question for a manager. What do I need to do to create an environment where all of the employees in my team feel comfortable to come to me and say, I think in six months, 12 months time, I might need to move on. Right. Knowing that there will be a conversation there that is safe and perhaps provides options and alternatives, but it might not. You know, and that's a long way from where most organizations are right now. But I feel totally. like it's real, it's healthy, it's truthful, and yet it might be painful in some areas as well. If you can get the environment to that safe place, because as you said, it could foster a conversation where, well, you know, I see what you're saying. And let's brainstorm. Actually, you could be used over here now. Exactly. Exactly. Right? And yeah. I have seen that happen a lot. It's quite elegant. Okay. So finish the story. So you're working with this team. They're thinking of themselves as a product. Mm. How has that helped them be more innovative? Well, I'm going to be honest. We're very early days in this particular okay. project. But right. in the same way that you said it struck a chord, It's helped them think, I think, in a very healthy way about the past that there's always been while we're a team and in the back of our minds, we kind of think, well, we'll go on forever. We won't ever end. We're now thinking more around the fact, look at the last two years, we've had to change the ways of working in order to stay alive, to thrive. Let's take hold of that and now say, well, rather than it being a reactive negative response, let's think about how we could take that mindset to our advantage and always be the highest possible performing team because we're always in this upgrade cycle. Got it. And that's the framework for all of this in this particular context is they want to be an organization where people do their career best work. So what does that take? And who's not motivated to want to help create a team where I'm going to do and we're going to do our career best work? That's hugely motivating as a framer. And this idea of products, continual recalibration around the environment, it seems to have struck a chord. So we'll see how it goes. Maybe we'll, we'll come back in six months and talk again. <laughs> well, you know what it does? It creates an environment, a space where you have to talk about the sensitive and uncomfortable issues. Mm. Yeah. In order to then continue to innovate, you hide them when you want things to stay the same. It's almost like a protectiveness of my role, yeah. as opposed to I have these skill sets that I can use anywhere. Yeah, that's right. All right. Well, I love this piece from your book where you have gotten a lot of insights from unexpected sources, guerrilla negotiator, cage fighter trainer, senior emergency room doctor. How was it helpful talking to such people? Well, the way I was thinking about it, I meet lots of really interesting people all of the time because of the nature of my work. And I'll be honest, there were a couple of people that I met. I thought just one day I want to bring you into something, some piece of work, whether it's writing or whatever else. And thankfully, some paths crossed in the right way here. But I guess the real motivation was what we're really talking about often with innovation is people doing new things together. And that causes all sorts of difficulties at a human level. And I really wanted to get to grips with that in the book in really practical ways to say, well, how can you overcome this? And sometimes some of the best lessons learned that help us look at the same issue through a different lens are seen in other fields. So, you know, the cage fighter had some fantastic stories around what it's like to take a punch. How do you take a punch? And that's where this first um, came from. When someone tells you your idea is awful, they don't like it. No, you shouldn't even be thinking like that. 
usually you have some degree of emotional attachment to an idea that you've just had and someone's just punched it. How does that feel? Yeah. So I talked to him about the real, you know, second by second feeling of being hit in the face for the first time or winded or knocked out. Should I even get up? And actually listening to this guy, really mean guy, lovely guy, but actually really tough, some amazing stories <laughs> um, about what it actually takes, how to breathe, how to get back on your feet, how to refocus, how you listen to your corner man. And wow. Really interesting stuff. The emergency room, dealing with people in your team, you see death every day. Mm-hmm. That can be a really depressing place. It can also mean you're making life and death situations with people every day and you may not agree with your colleague's point of view on things, but you still got to choose. And it's the same around how we make business decisions, you know, in teams that feel high risk. This may go the wrong way, but we're still going to make a choice. Okay, at a human level, what does it take to stay in a good place as a team? So just some really lovely... Oh, I agree. And... By talking to a team, it happens over here in this way. It happens over there in this way. Yeah. It really makes you look at your own team and the Mm. role you're playing, right? I've Mm. just been punched. And I was just dealing with a team yesterday. And the person just, this is a normal, unfortunate reaction. They close down. Yeah. They're not going to participate anymore. Mm. And no, you have to get up. Yeah. And I love something else you said about the cage fighter. He said, you have to listen to your ring man. Mm. Do you all have ring mans? Yeah. Right? You need them. Yeah. I love it. All right. Now take me to, you talked about organizations say, yeah, yeah, we want innovation. Mm. They don't adequately equip their teams for what that means. So how do you equip a team? How does a leader equip a team saying, all right, we're going to take on this innovation in the real way? Well, I think a couple of things up front would be, let's have a team innovation plan and figure out, okay, that's what we need to deliver. Here are some needles we need to move. What kind of environment are we going to need in order to deliver that? Talking about team culture, and we're going to have a collaborative conversation around more of this, less of that, and and be very clear on that. But actually, a lot of this comes down to capabilities. And very often, I work with teams and organizations who really only ever had training around brainstorming. And some of that, to be honest, hasn't been great either. And so you get this false impression inside organizations that innovation is just brainstorming. And of course, right. coming up with ideas is only one of seven or eight steps of an innovation process. So to begin with, I counsel organizations to equip their teams in four key areas. So the first is how to choose the right problem or opportunity to work on is strategically aligned that has potential high value around it but also as part of that you're teaching them how to create the business case for something which are the most valuable problems or opportunities that we should focus on and why and here's the business case behind it because i very often hear execs being very frustrated about the fact that people bring them ideas all the time but they haven't really applied any commercial thinking to it but Who's going to pay for that? What does that mean to our partnership strategy? What about the IP connected with it? And they're not difficult questions to answer often, but they haven't been thought through. So the first is, which problems should we solve? Second is training a team to ask better questions than their counterparts in the competition. Mm-hmm. So people often say, you know, it's all about having the best ideas. That's true. But often the best ideas come from a better framed question. So there's a whole thing around question design that I like to take people through so that you are asking questions that your competition hasn't even thought of yet. 
Okay. So I was doing some work with one of the big music labels and teaching them these principles. And they came up with this question once, which was, how could we predict whether a song will be a hit without even listening to it? Because they spend so much time listening to demo tapes, thousands and thousands of tracks, and there'll be a few gems in there. Someone's got to sit there and listen to all of those. So how could we find the hits without... But you think, well, it's impossible. Yeah, but what if we could? Anyway, yeah. they figured it out. They did some brain scans and they played... Well, they had live MRI scans, people listening to music, and they were able to track a brain profile, a pattern... The brain fired up in certain ways when people listened to music that had been a hit. And so they found this really interesting cause and effect relationship. Ah. So in theory, then, what they could do is create a piece of software. You just play the music through the computer and it figures out, will this create this kind of... Oh, my gosh. That would never have come about from a standard brainstorm because we'd be asking questions how can we just get more people listening to more tapes or how can we get them to listen to a double speed or something going out of the realms of how we would normally think and often it takes a counterintuitive impossible sounding question to break through that status quo tractor beam i talk about in the book which kind of pulls our thinking down so finding the right question so framing the right opportunities asking the right questions, then something around how to come up with better ideas. And that's not just brainstorming. It's the context in which the idea generation is happening. So are you doing it at times of day when people aren't exhausted? Are you doing it at times where people are just stressed out of their minds? And we know from psychology, from biology, from chemistry, we are more creative under certain conditions. And we know what they are. It's all been documented for years. So let's design our creative sessions with those things in mind. And then the final thing is, and I think this is often the game changer, you have your idea, but before you spend any time and money developing this thing, you run tiny experiments to test. Does anybody actually really want this? Are we really heading in the right direction? That's all born out of the whole lean startup movement. Yes. Experiment. Dream big, start small, learn fast. Fast. When a team can do that, they're generating valuable data in the very early stages so that when they go to their boss, they're not saying, boss, I've got an idea. They say, boss, I've got an experiment. In fact, I've run three experiments that have cost no money and the data is trending this way. The boss looks at that and says, brilliant. I've got some data on which to make a decision rather than a feel or someone's pet idea. And I don't know whether that's going to work or not. I was doing some work with the drinks company, Perno Ricard. We talk about this in the book. Uh And the the MD there, the CEO, got to the point where he said, I don't want anyone to bring me any ideas anymore. If you want to come and talk to me about a new thing, you bring me experiments, you bring me the data, and then we'll have a conversation. And that really helped change the culture around what's the smallest first step I need to take. That's a perfect example. Yeah. I mean, talk about change the conversation, but also change the definition of my job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got to do the experiment. That's part of my job. Yeah, so it's ownership, it's democratizing innovation, it's taking responsibility for creating data that we can act upon rather than, here's some ideas I'm throwing at the wall. It's maturity and innovation that's very easy to accomplish. Okay, now let's bring this around to what a lot of business folks are going to be thinking, and you have a whole section on it. How do you resource this? Time, money, talent. I mean, I have this idea, and now it's part of my job to actually do some experiments to get it. Not all of us can go out and do the brain scans on the music. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think this comes back to having a strategic view on innovation right from the start. And what we do is we say, 
How much innovation are we going to need? What kinds? How much can live at team level? It's incremental. We can kind of fit it in around the job. How much stuff is going to be outside? It's going to be experimental. It's going to need different capabilities and resources. So first we're defining, well, what do we mean by innovation and where should it show up? And then based on that, we can say, okay, at a team level, how much time broadly do we think we should be allocating to this 10% maybe of someone's job? What does that look like? And then yeah. you empower a team just to look at this and say, well, if it's a strategic imperative, then unless we deliver this innovation, then we won't hit these, move these needles and hit these numbers. Then we should look at our workload right now and say, OK, so what should we reduce or what should we stop or what should we outsource so that uh. we can do this new value? You don't try and stuff it in and that's just not dealing in that's reality. That's what they do. They try to stuff it, it in. And if you look at any organization or any venture capital firm that has a portfolio approach, every year they're looking at what's the lowest performing stuff here. We should move that out to make space for new. We don't tend to do that in teams. We're always trying to find ways to squeeze in more. That is a losing formula because all you do is you fill people's day with activity Innovation then becomes an evening job when everyone's exhausted, when the kids are in bed. Yeah, this extra experiment over there. What you're really saying is, this is how much we value innovation. We'll wait till people are exhausted and their kids are in bed, and now we want you to invent the future. Well, that's not good stewardship. Yeah, right, right. It's about defining reality to begin with. And I love, there's a question that Rita McGrath from Columbia University uses all the time, which is, what would need to be true? So in order for us to hit that number in, say, five years time, okay, there's the scenario. What would need to be true in the area of resourcing and capabilities and decision making in year four, in year three, in year two, in year one? And we can start to see what the progression would need to look like. And we have something actionable to deal with today. So part of it is that it's being strategic about and defining reality and a pathway to achieving that. Well, the biggest reason why people say they can't innovate is they don't have time. Okay, so where should we apply our focus for innovation? Yes. Finding time. That should be your number one priority. How do we create the capacity in this place to do the innovation? And everybody always does. It seems impossible at first. And when you start to really push people hard on, so how long do you have for a standard meeting? Does it have to be an hour? Run Mm -hmm. some experiments. What happens if you run that same meeting every week at half an hour? Some of them will be terrible. Some of them will be better. Some of them won't change. Let's run some experiments across all of our standard meetings and figure out how can we reduce the ones and maybe expand some that need more. Usually, I found a team can find at least 10 to 20% of additional time, which they can then choose to put on innovation if they want to. But... It requires discipline around meetings, and we're not very good at that. We're lazy with them often. Oh, the agenda discipline around what, in answer to the question, what it would take, mm. right? Discipline around facing up to that picture. Yeah. And your example of just looking at the meetings and uh, the bigger example and big experiment that's going on right now with everyone in terms of hybrid or virtual or mixed. I'm going to be looking at this and listening to this podcast uh, <laughs> several times. And I, mean, I already I shared that. with you, I'm going to share it with my MBA students and yeah, yeah, some yeah. of the future innovative laboratory you know, that we hope to do. You can have some fun with this as well. One of the things that I often encourage is for some of this stuff that seems really boring, like meetings, well, have some fun and say, okay, we're going to make an award, meeting of the year. 
meeting host of the year and you vote what was the best meeting and why okay what can we learn from that meeting of the week you know people i've heard people now are doing net promoter scores for meetings yes you have recommended that meeting to a colleague so you can put some stuff around this that helps create the motivation both kind of carrot and stick so again it's about being imaginative about what would need to be true in order for the tide to rise around how we use meetings effectively Totally. Elvin, I'm going to look forward to having you again because this discussion has been incredibly rich. How can our viewers get in touch with you? ElvinTurner.com is where I live most of the time. You can look on Amazon for Be Less Zombie and there's got some links in there. LinkedIn, I love meeting new people. So if you'd like to connect on LinkedIn, just look for me on there, Elvin Turner. They're probably the best places to look. Oh, that is just wonderful. And I have found you to be very accessible. So that's <laughs> exciting to people also. Good. Thank you so much for being with us. And I want to thank you. I want to thank our co-host, Mitch Simon. And I want to say to all viewers, please listen to this podcast and future podcasts and see you again on Team Anywhere. Anywhere.